On July 27, 1999, in the early morning hours, 44-year-old Mark Barton bludgeoned his wife, Leanne, to death with a hammer as she slept in their Stockbridge, Georgia apartment. The next day, he also bludgeoned to death his 9-year-old daughter and 11-year-old son from a previous marriage. In mid-afternoon, July 29th, several hours after he brutally murdered his children, Barton went to the downtown offices of Momentum Securities in Atlanta's Piedmont Center. The Offage brokerage provided trading terminals equipped with high-speed data connections that allowed day traders such as Barton to manage their own investments. After calmly talking to the receptionist and several staff for about 20 minutes, Barton abruptly took out a 9mm semi-automatic and a Colt 45. With a gun in each hand, Barton chillingly remarked with a smile that, It's a bad trading day, and it's about to get worse. He then began to systematically shoot the people around him at close range. Hello all, and welcome to episode 19 of the Everything But the Kitchen Sink podcast. I am your host, Clay Anderson, and today we'll be discussing the Atlanta spree killer, Mark Barton, who murdered 12 people within 24 hours, including his wife and two children. Also, this will look at the mysterious deaths of Barton's late wife and mother-in-law, who were murdered six years before the man's killing spree. These were slangs where he was the chief suspect. Mark Barton was born in Germany in 1955 to parents who were in the Air Force. The family lived in Europe until they relocated to Sumter, South Carolina, where Barton spent most of his youth. Barton was an intelligent child, although he was emotionally very distant. During his school years, he was considered unsociable and was ostracized by other students. However, he was very focused and excelled in his coursework, especially in math and chemistry. During his mid-teens, Barton began to experiment with hallucinogenic drugs. His experimental phase quickly turned into drug abuse, which likely served as a means to escape his lonely childhood. In fact, his drug abuse landed him in the hospital on several occasions following accidental overdoses. His drug use continued into his college years at Clemson University and at the University of South Carolina. While attending school, he even went so far as to result to burglary during his shaky period in his life as a means to get cash to pay for his habit. He was charged for the crime and eventually released on probation. However, Barton did take this opportunity to try and get some help. He underwent drug therapy and a psychiatric evaluation and treatment after suffering a mental breakdown. Barton finally graduated in 1979 from the University of South Carolina with a degree in chemistry. Shortly thereafter, he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where he worked at a series of jobs. At one of his jobs, he met and fell in love with Deborah Spivey, whom he married later that same year. It seemed as if Barton's erratic behavior was slowly beginning to stabilize as he became more content. In the mid-1980s, the couple eventually moved to Arkansas, where Barton landed a position as a president of a manufacturing company. In 1988, his first child, Matthew, was born and was followed several years later by a daughter, Michelle. Although the Bartons seemed like a happy family, Mark's behavior was cause for concern. 
Barton became increasingly paranoid and controlling, especially of his wife, Deborah. He began to publicly degrade her. Eventually, over the years, the marriage began a steady decline. Simultaneously, Barton's work began to slide, and in 1990, he was fired from his position. Barton was so enraged by his job loss that he sabotaged data files at the company where he had worked. He was eventually charged with the crime, which resulted in a brief stint in jail before being released after a settlement with the company. Shortly thereafter, Barton moved with his family to Georgia, where he found a job as a salesman at a chemical company. It was there that he met and fell in love with another woman, 22-year-old Leanne Lang. Deborah knew about the affair, but didn't outwardly reveal her knowledge of the other woman. In 1993, tragedy struck when Deborah and her mother were hacked to death in a camping trailer with a blunt instrument during their vacation. Barton was immediately considered the key suspect of the killings. Investigators believe that Barton's motive was a life insurance policy taking out on his wife just four days before her death that paid more than half a million dollars and his interest in pursuing a relationship with Leanne. Investigators found traces of what they thought might be blood in Barton's car, but before they could conduct further tests, the chemist told them he had spilled a soft drink on the area, ruining any potential evidence. Also, he gave what they felt were rehearsed answers to questions and he refused to take a polygraph test. However, Barton had an alibi and investigators were unable to produce enough evidence to charge Barton with the crime. Investors Life Insurance of Nebraska, which issued the policy, settled with Barton's claim for $450,000, with $150,000 of it going into a trust for the children. Now that Deborah was dead, Barton was free to court Leanne, who moved in with him just weeks following the murders. The couple planned to marry soon and became the happy family they both longed for. Yet the idea of happiness was a thought that was far removed from Barton's children who had just lost their mother. To make matters worse, shortly after the murders, three-year-old Michelle conveyed to a care worker that her father had fondled her in a sexual manner. There was little evidence to support the girl's claim, and investigators were unable to charge Barton with sexual abuse. Ultimately, nothing could be done to challenge Mr. Barton's custody because the child was too young to testify. During that investigation, a clinical psychiatrist evaluated him as someone who was certainly capable of homicidal thought and homicidal action. Despite the murders and the allegations of sexual abuse, Leanne married Barton in 1995 and decided to make the best out of the unusual circumstances. However, the problems were not far behind, and just a short period after their marriage, Leanne began to fear that she made the wrong decision in marrying Barton. Her new husband began to show signs of mental deterioration, lapsing in between depressive episodes and paranoid delusions. Leanne became increasingly fearful for her life and the children's Yet she tried to keep up appearances of a stable and happy family by engaging in activities with the children and going to church. The couple's marital problems worsened when Barton made a series of bad investments with the money he obtained from his wife's death. 
1999, he lost several hundred thousand dollars of personal income while day trading at Momentum Securities and Alltech. In 15 days, Barton lost roughly $105,000 by purchasing highly volatile internet stocks. He had initially hoped to increase the money so that he and Leanne might never have to work. Yet his plan backfired and he ended up owing as much as he hoped to have earned. Simultaneously, Barton's dreams and his mental state began to rapidly diminish. By July 1999, he was at his wit's end and was becoming increasingly angry with the cards fate had dealt him. He decided to exact his revenge over three nightmarish days filled with murder. It would result in one of the largest and most gruesome occupational homicide cases in Atlanta history. On July 27th, Barton woke up early and beat his wife to death with a hammer as she slept. He then stuffed her body inside the bedroom closet under a blanket. The next night, as his children slept, he beat them both with the same hammer and put them face down in the bathtub to make sure that they didn't wake up in pain. Barton then placed both of his children in bed and carefully laid them side by side and wrapped them in blankets. Barton laid on top of his son's body a video game and on his daughter's a teddy bear. There was also a note lying on each of them which was handwritten by their father. The note on the boy read, I give you Matthew David Barton, my son, my buddy, my life. Please take care of him. The note found on his daughter read, I give you Michelle Elizabeth Barton, my daughter, my sweetheart, my life. Please take care of her. It was believed that the children had been washed before they were placed in bed. Leanne was found, like the children, wrapped in a blanket with a handwritten note on top of her. The note said, I give you my wife, Leanne Barton, my honey, my precious love. Please take care of her. I will love her forever. Investigators found another note on the coffee table in the living room of the apartment. The letter was not handwritten like the others, but written on a computer and printed out. He claimed that although the killings resembled that of the 1993 murders of his former wife and mother-in-law, he was not responsible for their deaths. There is no reason for me to lie now, he explained. Barton wrote that he killed his wife because she was one of the main reasons for my demise, but that he regretted killing her. He stated that he killed his children because he didn't want them to suffer throughout their life as he had, and that he exchanged five minutes of pain for a lifetime of pain. Barton went on to claim that words cannot tell the agony. Why did I? I have been dying since October. I wake up at night so afraid, so terrified, that I couldn't be that afraid while awake. It has taken its toll. I have come to hate this life and this system of things. I have come to have no hope. On July 29th, Barton went to his lawyer's office in the morning and changed his will. Then he drove to the Piedmont Center where he had an appointment with the management at Momentum Securities to put up $50,000 cash so he could continue his fast-paced, high-risk stock market speculation. The day he murdered his wife, he lost his trading privileges for the second time in three months and the check he'd written to cover his margin had bounced. Momentum's manager was running late, and after waiting for 20 minutes, Barton pulled his guns and began to shoot anyone within close distance. 
Pandemonium broke out as men and women scrambled to escape the bullets that zipped past them. Eventually, the police were called to the scene. By that time they arrived, four people were already dead and many more were wounded. The nightmare was not yet over. Barton was able to walk past police unnoticed and cross the street to the other brokerage where he was also known to conduct day trading. When he arrived at the offices of Alltech Investment Group, located on the third floor of Two Security Center, he made his way directly towards the manager's office. He cheerfully greeted the staff as he walked towards the manager and his secretary. No one in the office was yet aware of the horrific events that had happened minutes earlier across the street. Several minutes after Barton stepped into the manager's office, gunshots rang out through the corridor. He then made his way towards the main landing room, and with a gun in each hand, Barton tried to shoot everyone he saw. A woman wounded stated that as he shot, he remarked, I hope this doesn't ruin your trading day. By the time the gunfire ceased, five more people lay dead in the Alltech offices, and many more were injured. Once again, Barton passed unnoticed by the police and fled from the office park on foot. The survivors and law enforcement officials were left behind to try and make sense of the carnage that confronted them. Not knowing he had just massacred more than half a dozen people, witnesses saw Barton running from the crime scene. Other witnesses claimed to have seen a man fitting Barton's description walking quickly away from the offices and nervously glancing around. The suspicious man eventually disappeared into a wooded area and wasn't seen again. Hours after the shooting rampage, Barton's whereabouts remained a mystery. The police vigorously searched the city of Atlanta, looking for him, but they were unsuccessful. However, investigators did find the remains of Barton's family in his girlfriend's apartment in the Atlanta suburb of Stockbridge. The grisly deaths of Barton's wife and children sent even more shockwaves through an already stunned community. Many shook their heads in disbelief at how one man could be responsible for so much carnage. In the space of just three days, Barton claimed the lives of three family members and nine people at the brokerage offices. Moreover, he wounded 20 more victims who were being treated at area hospitals. The investigators' momentum increased as the death toll climbed. They were anxious to prevent any more unnecessary deaths, and they were intent on finding and capturing what was now one of Atlanta's most notorious mass murderers. Almost five hours after the shooting rampage, Barton reemerged again at a shopping mall in Kennesaw, Georgia. There he threatened a young girl's life, yet she managed to run away from him and call the police. Shortly thereafter, Barton stepped into his van and drove away. Soon, a person spotted the widely publicized van and the police were called to the scene. Before long, Barton's van was followed by a swarm of inconspicuous police cars. Barton pulled into a gas station in Ackworth, not realizing he was being trailed. Within moments, the police surrounded his van. Brandishing their guns, they ordered Barton to get out of the vehicle. Suddenly, Barton turned one of his own guns on himself and blew his brains out. His suicide was a violent end to a series of horrific events that shocked Atlanta and the nation and awakened many to the dangers associated with violence in the workplace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Next week, we will discuss Gary Hilton, 
a serial killer who stalked state and national parks in North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. He was tied to four murders and convicted of two. Yet, he is implicated in several more. Hilton currently sits on death row in a Florida state prison. Thanks again, and I'll speak to you soon.